Hi, and welcome to Listen Up A-Holes, the only Marvel Cinematic Universe podcast that will die with its mouth open, betrayed by ambition. I'm story expert Lonnie Diane Rich of Chipperish Media. And I'm Joshua Unruh, superhero scholar from Pulp Diction Productions. Together we're making our way through the good, the bad, and the bonkers of the MCU. So listen up, A-Holes, we're going to talk about Daredevil. All right, Lonnie, welcome to this edition of Four Color Facts, Daredevil. Yes. So clench your jaw and turn down the lights because it's time for the grim and gritty 1980s. Ooh. So in superhero comic books, the 80s very much became known for a more realistic storytelling, which at its best meant introducing complex, morally gray, noir stories. Mm-hmm. At its worst, which was the unfortunate majority of the time, this meant the introduction of air quotes mature themes in the hopes that giving your hero a drug habit or dismembering some bystanders would turn a mediocre story good. Narrator voice, it didn't. <laughs> Now, unarguably, one of the architects of this shift was Frank Miller, daredevil artist turned daredevil writer artist in 1979. Mm-hmm. Miller did the noir storytelling very well and wasn't just going for like a cheap veneer of maturity. He introduced Wilson Fisk as a main antagonist to Daredevil, replacing much of his more colorful rogues gallery. Organized crime was very much brought to the forefront, and Wilson Fisk stopped carrying around walking sticks with lasers in them all the time. (laughs) Miller also put Matt into more of an anti-hero role and began the long-running story beat of Matt's secret identity being constantly compromised. Now we had Eventually, everybody's got to find out, though, right? Oh, yeah. Like, that's, I'm saving the time that literally everyone found out for next episode. Okay, great. <laughs> and and to be fair, the I mentioned that before Miller came on as both writer and artist, Ben Urich had already deduced Matt's secret identity. But at this point, mm-hmm. it just becomes de rigueur to be like, oh, yeah. hey, what do you know? <laughs> Matt's daredevil. Isn't he blind? Don't ask me. I mean, it's really like the number of times this conversation has happened on page is shocking. And they go through that that whole thing over oh, and yeah. over again. To the point where we hang a lampshade on it again in the storyline I'll talk about next episode. Okay. Miller also introduced The Hand, an organization mm-hmm. that I will discuss briefly this episode, but we will continually expand on in season two, Iron Fist, so I'm told, and The Defenders. Like okay. we're gonna know a lot about the hand by the time we're done, but your uh, your attraction to Nobu has come to fruition <laughs> in this episode, and I have to yeah. talk about the hand at least a little bit. Okay. Mm-hmm. Miller also introduced Stick and the Chaste, as mm-hmm. well as Matt's famous and deadly love interest. Although we'll have to wait to actually name her until season two. Like I'm just not even going okay. into it until she has been on screen. All right. Mm -hmm. Also, unarguably, Miller's run is the biggest influence on both the storyline and the tone of the Netflix series. Okay. All right. Well, yeah, I mean, it's dark and noir-y, and it does have that kind of Frank Miller sheen to it. Yeah, it's very gritty. It's very serious. Um, 
you know, mm-hmm. Matt is not a good guy per se. Like he is doing mm-hmm. heroic things, but maybe sometimes for the wrong reasons. And we'll talk a lot more about that yeah. this episode. But I mean, that <laughs> tone of, yeah, as you say, just like making it very on the label and noir superhero story is yeah. 100% Frank Miller. Okay. Yeah. It is difficult for me to even discuss Miller's work on Daredevil divorced from the cultural movement that it became in superhero comics. Mm -hmm. It's really hard for me to like pull those things apart and just focus on Daredevil. I mean, Mm -hmm. Miller's work on Batman in both Dark Knight Returns and Year One were combined Mm -hmm. with Alan Moore's Watchmen to become the juggernaut of Grim and Gritty in superhero comics in the 80s. But the groundwork for all of that Miller's prototype was Daredevil. Okay. It's been said that the Batman comic most influential on the modern take for the character is actually Daredevil. (laughs) Okay. No, that is not true. That is a a statement that I will take issue with, but it's not as wrong as I'd like it to be. Right. (laughs) So what's your argument for that it's not true? I mean, did Batman predate? Did this gritty sense of Batman predate? the Miller Daredevil stuff or? Yes and no. Um, for those okay. of you who have listened to, super, well, it's it's a matter of gradation, let's say, right? Okay. So mm-hmm. for those of you a-holes who also listen to me talk at length about Batman on the most recent series in Superhero University, I talked about how in the 70s, two men, uh, Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams took over much of the Batman storytelling and really brought back the Dark Knight in the Dark Knight Detective. Uh, mm-hmm. It became much more moody and more gothic with a lot of the art style choices, very shadowy and all that stuff. And he really did become a much more serious character from the 60s, right? I mean, that bar's pretty mm-hmm. low, but I mean, they really took it back to serious, grim guy. Right, because the 60s was that super campy, very colorful, pow, zang, zoom, like that yeah. kind of thing, yes. right? Yes, yes. From the TV show. And they okay. really came in and said, let's take him back to a, something a little closer to what Bob Kane and Bill Finger, mostly Bill Finger, because Bob Kane is a noted hack, were doing back in the 40s, <laughs> right? <laughs> okay. At the same time that I say that, and it's all 100% true, this is also the time that they introduced Ra's al Ghul, which means you also get globe-trotting Batman of mystery mm-hmm. and sword fighting on top of Zeppelins and hairy-chested love god Batman. So, I mean, it's not dark. It's, it is darker and it is more serious, mm-hmm. but it's also still very much this big adventure story. When Frank yeah. Miller does a book called The Dark Knight Returns, what you get is a look at the end of Batman. Like, it's after he has hung up the cape and cowl and is forced in his 50s to come out of retirement because the world has gone to hell in a handbasket. Mm-hmm. And then this left them in a place where they let Miller do the relaunch of Batman's origin, Batman Year One which comes out in about 1985, 1986. And mm-hmm. Gotham looks very much like New York of the 70s. You know, like mm-hmm. it's a lot of porn theaters and uh, <laughs> drug abusers and pimps and prostitutes, like just, you know, lining the street. It becomes very much more a a dirty place when Bruce uh-huh. Wayne is returning from abroad to start his war against crime. And this is also when you start to see Thought balloons phased out in favor of caption mm-hmm. boxes because that feels more like noir style voiceover. I mean, it just becomes much more noir on the label mm-hmm. than Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams did. They made it much more serious, 
Miller made it much more noir. Okay. All right. That was a long way around. No, I was really interested. And I also love asking you questions that take you off script because it is always amazing to me, like how you know this stuff just off the top of your head. Like we have a script that we're going through and then I'll ask you something and you will have just as much specific information off the top of your head. (laughs) So for me, it's kind of fun just to ask you those kinds of questions. Well, in this case, I have a little bit of a cheat, right? Because uh-huh. that that shift for comic books as a whole really begins with Miller on Batman. But what Miller was doing on Batman really begins with what Miller was doing on Daredevil. And and I don't, okay. I really appreciated the cleverness of the first person I ever heard say the most influential mm-hmm. Batman book on modern Batman is Daredevil. And I was like, right. that's a really good thought. But no, I mean, but it's really, there's a lot of meat there. You know, you're an academic, you know how this works. It's kind of like multiple discovery, right? That these things were just sort of both happening at the same time and they sort of melded together in a way where the edges are not that well defined, right? Well, except you're talking about Frank Miller largely here, like uh, not entirely because Alan Moore did Watchmen and that was a huge deal. But but you're talking about one guy, right? And essentially right. Mm-hmm. he went as hard in the paint as he could for noir superhero with Daredevil mm-hmm. in a way that you really okay. couldn't for Batman without breaking the character to a certain extent. Sure. Batman's mm-hmm. not an anti-hero. You know, he's never yeah. very conflicted about murdering people. And again, I wish somebody would let Zack Schneider know. No, right. <laughs> but nevertheless, that <laughs> ship has sailed. Um, but yeah, so so Miller just goes as noir as possible with Daredevil, so he knows where that line is, and when he gets Batman, he like ratchets it back to a place that really makes sense for Batman. But his work on Batman Year One and Dark Knight Returns were just so much higher profile than what he was doing on Daredevil. Okay. All right. for, for instance, without going down this rabbit trail, Dark Knight Returns and yeah. Watchmen are responsible for graphic novels being sold in bookstores at all. And now that wow. is a huge piece of the business sure. for both mm-hmm. bookstores and comic book publishers. But that happens at all because of Dark Knight Returns and Watchmen. Uh-huh. So that is how high profile that take on Batman became. Okay. So with all of that true about Miller's work on Batman, before that happens, he's doing that times a hundred in Daredevil. You've mm-hmm. got an endless backdrop of seedy street corners populated with pimps and pushers and patrolled by a conflicted, self-flagellating costume vigilante <laughs> who's in love with a femme fatale that is just as likely to kill you with her bare hands as she is with her beauty. Mm-hmm. You've got villains who are only darker than your hero by a few shades. Mm-hmm. And that's all Frank Miller's Daredevil. All right. The way this happens, towards the end of the 70s, the sales on Daredevil were so low that the title was in danger of being canceled. Denny O'Neill, who I mentioned as a recreator of Batman, was the Mm -hmm. man in charge. He was a new editor at Marvel. So as I mentioned, O'Neill and Adams together took Batman back to his roots as the Dark Knight and also made superheroes, air quotes, relevant when Green Mm -hmm. Arrow took Green Lantern on a cross-country trip across America in an old pickup so that GL could learn about racism and GA could learn about drug abuse. (laughs) I don't love it, is what I'm saying. I don't love it. Was it it like a comic book version of The More You Know? Was it that kind of thing? Like the after-school special messaging just with darkness? Or what is that about? You and I are of an age where we can remember the concept of the very special episode. 
Yes. Mm-hmm. It's basically a very special episode of Green Lantern and Green Arrow that goes on for years. Oh, wow. I don't oh, that love sounds it. kind of painful. Yeah. Yeah. Now, it, it was a quantum leap, you might say, in the technology mm-hmm. of superheroes. Like, look, we can actually take these things on directly and not always use a metaphor. Except right. mm-hmm. this is also the moment when you start to realize that if you do that, it makes superheroes look as ridiculous as they actually are by pitting them against stuff you can't actually have them beat. Right. Yeah. Green Arrow is going to learn about drug abuse when he discovers that his sidekick is using heroin. But what's he going to do to beat heroin? You can't shoot an arrow at heroin. (laughs) You can't punch heroin in the face, right? You cannot punch heroin. (laughs) Okay. So I appreciate very much the work that Denny and Neil did by showing that that was a thing that could be done. But Mm -hmm. then it just feels very dated. And it feels very dated almost immediately. But you can see where... Denny O'Neill is the man who would be put in charge of a darker street-level vigilante book like Daredevil. Mm-hmm. And while he liked the tone of McKenzie's scripts, he really liked Frank Miller, what Miller was doing on pencils. Mm-hmm. And after Miller killed it on another backup story, Denny just went ahead and gave him the writing job on Daredevil to keep him happy. Okay. Mm-hmm. Which is the point that Miller continues on with McKenzie's darker tone, but just doubles down on all that noir stuff, and also uh-huh. ignores or rewrites any of Matt's backstory or continuity that got in the way of his take. Okay. This is controversial to actual Daredevil fans. Uh-huh. But the problem was there weren't that many of those. So Okay. <laughs> Matt becomes more of an anti-hero. This is where the willingness to torture people for information and possibly kill his enemies if they're dangerous enough he doesn't want to face them a second time. This is when that mm-hmm. starts happening. Mm-hmm. Foggy loses re-election as district attorney and returns to a very fraught non-profit practice with Matt that leaves their friendship strained over lies and secret identities. Mm-hmm. Karen Page returns after having left decades previously. Okay. I mean, decades in real time, right? In the fiction, she returns. Yeah. She had left to be an actress. After a series of modest successes as an actress... She becomes a porn star and a heroin addict, and she sells Matt's secret identity to a dealer for a hit of smack. Oh, my God. The dealer, in turn, sells it to the kingpin. Wow. By the way, for those of you who are playing at home, this is the first (laughs) inkling that we have that Frank Miller has a problem with women. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, now, this is the first inkling, so we can forgive everybody who was just like, damn, that's noir and dark, because it is. But after 30 or 40 years, that's what we call a pattern. Right. Mm -hmm. Now, like I said, I can't overemphasize the impact all of this had on comics, and it's an impact that reaches into the modern day. Mm -hmm. We still have Marvel and DC flirting with air quotes, mature themes, as a code word for more dismembering, more sex, and more conflicted versions of characters that were initially meant for children. Mm-hmm. Now, the hardest part for me is that when Grim and Gritty is done well, like in Miller's or Ed Brubaker's Daredevil or Batman mm-hmm. Year One or even Watchmen, it's powerful storytelling. Right. Unfortunately, the majority of writers just want to stick needles in arms and have our heroes make questionable moral choices for shock value in lieu of expert storytelling. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the majority of grim and gritty comics. Nevertheless, <laughs> it was in Daredevil in the early 1980s that murder, organized crime, contract killers, street-level realism, and ninjas became the order of the day. 
That's right, ninjas. A million billion ninjas. Ninjas were big in the 80s. You're right. We're going to talk about that a little bit. Yeah. Yes, because we are going to talk about that. (laughs) Because here's the hand. Right. So, since Nobu put on an actual ninja outfit to fight Daredevil, and because Mm -hmm. this is a very Frank Miller heavy four-color facts, let's start (laughs) talking about the hand. All right. There will be lots of opportunities for me to go really deep into them. They become a big deal for a lot of the Netflix MCU. Okay. Mm -hmm. Short form. They're a ninja clan (laughs) created by Frank Miller. They've Mm -hmm. existed for around 900 years. Okay. After World War II, they flirted with Hydra. Mm -hmm. They are consummate warriors and have access to Japanese sorcery and demonology. Wow. No member of the Hand is ever taken alive because once defeated, they evaporate. Wait a minute. That's right. They leave their (laughs) clothes behind, just like Obi-Wan Kenobi. They just evaporate. Yeah, because you can't take them alive. All right, because they're magical. Right. right. Yeah, magic ninjas. (laughs) Magic ninjas. I don't understand why you're hung up on it's magic ninjas. (laughs) No reason. Go ahead. No reason. The hand leadership also has the ability to sacrifice their warriors to resurrect their greatest warriors. So they will just mm-hmm. just sacrifice the rank and file to bring back the really good ones. Oh, okay. Which they have done to the aforementioned Daredevil love interest that I refuse to talk about until season two. Mm-hmm. And they have also done it to Omega Red, who you may recall us talking about as an asset of the Red Room. Right. Mm -hmm. And also really obvious on the nose opposite number to Wolverine, which we're never going to have to talk about because if the MCU brings the mutants into their regular storytelling after the buyout, I will flip this table and walk away while it burns. (laughs) You heard it here first, friends. Duly noted. Anyway. Duly noted. (laughs) To return to the hand. Mm -hmm. This is so great. You're going to love this. Miller concocted the existence of the hand because Denny O'Neill, his editor, suggested that Miller give Matt a fighting style, wait for it, grounded in reality. Sure, evaporating ninjas are completely grounded in reality. Exactly. What's the problem there? (laughs) They set upon ninjutsu because it was the (laughs) 80s and ninjas were serious business. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, you know this, but so let's, I mean, for those of you playing at home, I can <laughs> off the top of my head name three different movies called Ninja, Ninja 2, and Ninja 3 The Domination. By the way, Ninja 3 The Domination is dope. That one is uh, okay. good. You also have American Ninja 1 and 2. Uh-huh. Uh, this is all in the movies. You have the yeah. incredibly popular G.I. Joe comics at Marvel with Snake Eyes mm-hmm. and Storm Shadow, who are both ninjas that wreck all the face fit to wreck. With mystical powers of ninjutsu. <laughs> All of this is before Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles get big, uh-huh. which they are actually a parody of Miller's work on Daredevil and another book he did called Ronin. No way. Yes, that's why the Foot Clan. Uh-huh. Because they are parodies. They're, you know, other homage versions of the hand. Oh. Uh-huh. Oh, okay. Yeah. And if you go back, this is before the cartoon. If you go back to like the black and white TMNT comics that were originally mm-hmm. put out, they are so noir that they are parodying noir. Oh, wow. And they're doing it with this ridiculous concept because Eastman and Laird were making sort of 
pastiche homage to Frank Miller's work on Daredevil and Ronin. Okay. Wow. Now, I know. No one knows this. Well, I mean, not nobody. But, I mean, this is not a thing that gets talked about a lot. (laughs) But I was Mm -hmm. the kid who discovered the cartoon, loved it because I was the perfect age to think that was great. And then, because there weren't other Ninja Turtle comic books at the time, they weren't. Mm-hmm. you know, quite yet this giant juggernaut, I find a graphic novel collection of their other stuff. And I was like, what the hell is this? Wow. They are straight murdering these dudes, you know, and stuff like that. <laughs> wow. Now, thanks to Frank Miller, the hand were the go-to ninjas in the Marvel 616 until the present day, until now. Uh-huh. Daredevil personally beat the stuffing out of thousands of them. <laughs> and Wolverine has killed a hundred times that many. Wow. Sometimes while teaming up with Captain America in the 40s to save baby Natasha Romanoff from becoming what this show would call a black sky. Oh. That issue of X-Men is great. Wow. I can't even put that together. What that means to save her from becoming a black sky, because if they saved her from that, but she still ended up in the red room. Yeah. Saved her, I guess. Frying pan and fire sounds like to me. Yes. 100% accurate. But that is Mm -hmm. not a thing that is dealt with, you know, in that very issue. What you have going on. This is such a good issue. It's drawn by Mm -hmm. Jim Lee, who is a very popular artist at the Mm -hmm. time. He's still a very popular artist, just not with me because his art looks exactly the same 25 years later. Mm -hmm. You know, progress your style. But at the time, it's amazing. And you have a present day story of Mm -hmm. Wolverine and Psylocke, who is a British woman stuck in a Japanese woman's body who became a ninja, and his current (laughs) teenage sidekick, Jubilee, who shoots fireworks out of her hands, teaming Uh up with Black Widow to clean up some of the problem that was left over from the flashback part of the story. Wow. Where Logan, because it's way before Metal Bones and Claws and Wolverine, teams up with Mm -hmm. Captain America, and the person that we would be introduced to to as Black Widow's like chauffeur and control. Mm-hmm. Later, they all three team up to save toddler Natasha from the hand who kidnapped her. Okay. I'm all probably right. going to wind up cutting all of that. I just thought you would be entertained. <laughs> no, it is. <laughs> and that's all I'm going to say about the hand for now. For now. Okay. They remain kind of a looming presence in the Netflix all series. Right. So we're, we're going to have right. more of them. Mm-hmm. Now, I have one last honorable mention. I have gone on for a bit. That this The Miller Daredevil stuff is the, I couldn't just jump to it because you really needed to know how Daredevil gets started so that you know what a huge shift it was, you know, when right. Miller took mm-hmm. over. But mm-hmm. this is the stuff I've been waiting for. Um, yeah. We'll talk next episode about how Miller's take on Daredevil is still kind of rolling through those books with Ed Brubaker doubling down on the double down for a noir Mm -hmm. work. And then how Mark Wade comes along afterwards and does his best to rehabilitate the character from the extremely dark places that he goes fairly recently. So I'm done with that for now. Honorable mention. Van Lunt. You may recall... (laughs) Very close to the end of our 10th episode. Yes. Mm -hmm. Owsley mentions a senator winning because of the astrological influenced advice of Cornelius Van Lunt. Yes. Mm -hmm. This is a reference to the 616. 
Okay. Van Lunt is the second leader of an organization that I've mentioned before, the cartel-turned-super-spy organization Zodiac. Uh-huh. His codename within the organization is Taurus. Mm-hmm. And doesn't Leland's comment make more sense now? Yes, it does. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I appreciate it's not like it stopped the story, but it was just like one no. sentence where if you're paying close attention and don't know about Zodiac, you would be like, the hell is he on about? Right, right. No, it was a weird little throwaway moment, you know, but I do remember him saying that. Yeah, because yeah, it's weird. Now, mm-hmm. we kind of already have a feel for what Daredevil Season 3 is going to be about. I've seen right. some. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's dropped by the time you're listening to this episode, A-Holes. It will be available mm-hmm. in the world, but I got to see some extra stuff at New York Comic Con. We kind of already mm-hmm. have a feel for it. But let me tell you, I am 100% here for the battle between Matt Murdock and a bunch of crooked businessmen who have eyes wide shut masquerades while wearing Zodiac themed costumes. <laughs> that season of Daredevil cannot come soon enough for me. That sounds fantastic. We're never going to get that, but I would have it if they would give it to me. Oh, that'd be great. Well, thank you so much. Those four color facts were absolutely fantastic. As always, endless entertainment from Joshua Unruh. But now we're going to move into talking about these episodes. In Shadows in the Glass, Wilson Fisk wakes up from a nightmare and looks at the rabbit in a snowstorm painting. He picks out his clothing, puts on the world's ugliest cufflinks, makes breakfast, and eats alone. Is this interesting? Not really. Significant in any way? Eh? Pretentiously artistic? B-I-N-G-O is his name-o, and we're going to do it two more times. <laughs> Through a series of flashbacks, we discover that Fisk's daddy issues are severe, y'all. His father was a caricature with delusions of grandeur, and when Wilson was in trouble, he made him stare at a cracked plaster wall that looks a lot like the painting. So... That explains that. When he loses a run for city council and a neighborhood kid calls him a loser and beats Wilson up, he grabs young Wilson and goes to beat up the kid, making Wilson kick the kid when he's down. Later that night, he beats Wilson's mother and Wilson brains him with a hammer. As he and his mother engage in the time-honored ritual of dismembering and disposing the abusive father's body, she takes the cufflinks off his dad and gives them to Fisk. Because it's important to have souvenirs from that time you killed your father. And that's the nightmare Fisk has every night before jolting awake and staring at the painting. In a three-beat of pissed off, Nobu, Gao, and Leland Owsley all express dissatisfaction with the way he's running things. The only person still on his side appears to be Wesley because they are total BFFs and lackeys never jump off a sinking ship. Pregnant. Pause. When Detective Blake wakes up from his assassination attempt-induced coma and is in danger of regaining the ability to speak, they work together to get Hoffman to kill his best friend of 35 years. Hoffman delivers an injection into Blake's IV, and Daredevil shows up just in time to hear Blake's dying words before jumping out the window and being blamed again for his death. Matt discovers that Karen and Foggy are also after Fisk, following the trail of money from Union Allied all the way up with the help of journalist Ben Urich. On a rainy night, Daredevil follows Urich into an alley and they stand in a deluge instead of ducking under an awning to talk because real men don't care about getting soaked to the bone. He tells Urich about Fisk and Leland Owsley, saying that men like him work from the shadows and Urich needs to pull him into the light. After meeting with Gao and getting his ass handed to him, Fisk throws a very expensive hissy fit in his apartment and shouts at Wesley to just leave him alone. 
All that's missing is Fisk throwing himself into his bedroom and shouting, I hate you, as he slams the door and falls face first into his bed and crying into his pillow. Why wasn't that in the flashbacks, huh? Let's be honest. <laughs> that shit happened. Wesley's having none of it, though. He fetches Vanessa because that's what BFFs do. Get a woman to fix everything. Fisk tells Vanessa the story of killing his father and then whines that he's just misunderstood and he's not a monster, but mean people keep trying to bring him down and it's just not fair. Vanessa comforts Fisk, apparently having no problem with any of this. And as they stare out into the thundering night, she asks him if he's going to just let these people take him down or what? Is he a man or a mouse? Fisk decides that he's a man and takes her to bed. The next morning, Fisk wakes up from another nightmare and looks to the painting for a moment, then turns over and cuddles Vanessa. She picks out his outfit, choosing lighter colors and new cufflinks. So now he's a new man and completely over murdering his father. This is how therapy works, I'm told. <laughs> it isn't. Just don't at me. <laughs> She stands beside him as he holds a press conference, denouncing the devil of Hell's Kitchen, blaming him for everything that's wrong in this city, and vowing to take him down and save Hell's Kitchen from tyranny. Well, tyranny other than his own, anyway. We know which side his bread's buttered on. Ben Urich deletes the now useless article he was writing exposing Fisk, and Matt throws an expensive hissy fit of his own, throwing his laptop across the room. See, they're twins! They're twins! Right, Mere they images. Are. It's this reflection yep. on each other. I know! <laughs> Shadows in the Glass was written by Stephen S. DeKnight, another Buffy alum, and this is the first of three episodes that he will write in season one. This episode was directed by Stephen Sergic and is the only episode he directs this season. All right, so Joshua. Yeah. <laughs> I got to say, these three episodes were not highlights for me, so I'm kind of hoping that you loved them enough for both of us. What are the chances? Unlikely. Okay. <laughs> They're not high. They're not it high. It wasn't great. I actually I actually didn't mind. Like this episode, I, I kind of liked the structural elements. Yes. Like I thought that I love, you know me, I love a good three beat and we've got them in here, you know, in spades. We've got the three beat of him, uh, you know, waking up and looking at, um, at the painting mm -hmm. and we get that whole story. Um, we've got other stuff in there happening, which is, which is really good. And I think that it's, it's kind of nice, but I just like, I didn't care. Yeah. I don't care about Fisk. And the closer we get to Fisk, Fisk is much scarier from a distance. You get up close on that shit. And it is just, it's, it's, it's weird and it's uncomfortable and it's awkward. And it doesn't make me like afraid of him or feel like he's dangerous. Like Gao and Leland Owlsley are harassing this yeah. guy. <laughs> like, and he's getting upset because Gao's like, I know you speak Chinese, right? Okay, to um, be fair, he should yeah. be scared shitless of Gao. That's okay. real talk. And he should be Owsley, like Gal is serious. Yeah, but he Owsley. should be pants messing, terrified of Gal. Right, right. Okay, so just, just making sure. No, I mean, like I get it, but still, like if he is that upset about, he's supposed to be running the show. He is supposed to be scarier than Gal. You know, when a septuagenarian Chinese woman comes in and sits down and and like terrifies you, right? You know, like it doesn't make him look that scary. Right? No, I agree. So I don't I know. For me, it was it was a problem. Like uh, Fisk is just, I don't know, like it, not working for me in this episode. What did you think? This episode in specific, like this is the microcosm mm -hmm. of the bigger issue that I talked about right from jump. Yeah. Where we should have been hearing from Fisk and finding out about Fisk from the beginning. Right. 
the mirror, the cracked mirror aspect between Matt and Fisk is so on the nose. They're obviously doing it. Yeah. But when you separate it by four or five episodes, it lessens the impact. Mm -hmm. And if we could go from Matt and Foggy spending nothing to outfit their office, right over to Fisk spending way too much on a white painting. And then if we had Matt's daddy issues, and then directly after that we had Fisk's daddy issues. Like, I'm not necessarily saying that would make the flashbacks better, but we would understand what they were doing with these men, Mm -hmm. you know. Right. Um, and so this this was the episode that I had in mind when I was like, episode eight? This should have been like episode three. <laughs> right. Yeah, That that this should have been moved up further that we would get this sense of who he is. But also, like, there's not much going on with Matt and Karen and Foggy in this episode. Right. You know? Yeah. Um, and... I also don't understand, like, we go through this whole thing where, you know, Matt's like, oh, you know, we have to expose him, we have to bring him into the light, he likes being in the shadows, yada, yada, yada. And then he comes out and has a press conference saying, my name is Wilson Fisk, right? Like, I get it. Like, yeah. whether whether he says what his name is or not, does not take, it's not like what they were going to reveal is that his name was Wilson Fisk and he got the jump on them, you know? This is, yeah. they were going to reveal all the stuff that he's done and that is still in the shadows so at the end when everybody's all like oh my god he went on tv and told people his name like that they've suddenly been set back you know it i didn't get it am i missing something no not in this episode Mm -hmm. like they wanted to have a big gut punch cliffhanger episode but they don't explain why it's a cliffhanger and a gut punch until the next episode yeah because it's not him saying his name it's that now he has manufactured a clean past for himself. Like right. just pointing out that this guy vanished and and his ties to all this stuff, but we don't know anything about him. Who is Wilson Fisk mm-hmm. was the tactic that they were taking, but we hear nothing about his brand new squeaky clean manufactured past until the next episode. Right. So mm-hmm. this, this cliffhanger, no, in the moment that you get it, does not make sense. It doesn't make sense. And like, I mean, you know, I understand it to a certain degree, but not to the degree where everybody's like, where Ben's like, well, forget it. I'm just going to quit, you know, <laughs> and where where Matt's throwing his stuff across the room. Yeah. Yes. It. I mean, if we somehow could have got the exposition that happens in the next episode yeah. where they talk about how, well, now this all is above board. Like now it's a much different, more complicated paper trail because he... Right. It's now a paper trail that he knows people will look at. So now right. it's it's been more difficult clean. to untangle. Right, right. But we don't get any of that. And so everybody is just like giving up. And I'm like, yeah. Okay, because you know. he said my name is Wilson Fisk and I love Hell's Kitchen. Um, but he's also so weird. And to be honest, maybe that's not what you want your protagonists doing in an episode where I'm also sitting there thinking, maybe I should quit. Right. Which I was actually <laughs> doing during this episode. Like... Hey, remember that other story that we were doing? Where'd it go? Yeah. And the thing is that it like structurally, like like story element wise, it actually is really well done. I I love the three beat, you know, that we've got him getting up and he looks at the painting and all of this stuff. And then we get that moment where as a kid, he's looking at the wall and the wall looks exactly like that painting. So obviously there's Mm -hmm. a a correlation there. Um, You know, in the earlier episode when they were first looking, he was first looking at the painting and Vanessa asked him how it made him feel. He said, it makes me feel alone because when he was staring at the wall like that, he was always alone. And then we end, you know, we have him being alone in the first beat, have him alone in the second beat. And then the third beat, of course, that we get the subversion. He's with Vanessa, right? And apparently 
everything's okay now because he fell in right. love. You know, like it's it's a little bit much to think that, you know, a night of good sex with somebody you care about apparently just erases years and years and years of childhood trauma. Um, I'm thinking probably not. Uh, it's maybe like moved yes. it into a different venue, I think. <laughs> yeah, know? seems unlikely. Yeah. Seems unlikely that yeah. that's all it would take. Yeah. I, I agree with you that like the internal structure of this episode is really good. Yeah. But this is, this is also the place where I start grinding this axe about how they need to, the creators of these shows need to start thinking about the bigger picture yeah. and that, that it's like each of these episodes is a chapter mm-hmm. in a, you know, in a novel kind right. of approach. And this just does not belong here. Like we had a head of steam. Mm-hmm. It's gone. Right. Yeah. And no. without jumping ahead too far, they try and reclaim it with some dumbass decisions. Yeah. Because they know they've done it. They right. know they've killed their own momentum. Mm-hmm. But they did it any damn way. I just, yeah, they, which just makes the fact that the structure of this episode is so good even more frustrating. Because it was like, but you put it here. Yeah. You guys clearly understand how this works. Right. It does seem like it should be earlier in the season. And I think like, you know, and so with my respect for the writing, you know, like uh, all of that stuff, like the overall big picture writing of it, um, you know, it, it kind of frustrates me that it is, uh, I, I honestly, by the end of this episode was like, I just don't care. Also, yeah. how weird is Wesley? Like, how weird. He's so weird. How weird is Wesley? We have him in that scene where he's chatting casually with Fisk with his glasses off, leaning against the table. That's not Wesley. Wesley stands stock straight, glasses on, never casual. That button doesn't come unbuttoned. That tie is never loosened. Like, this is the creepy guy. So we have him seeming so normal. And then we have him in the scene with Hoffman where they're trying to convince him to kill Blake, right? And Wesley is sitting behind Hoffman with the chair backwards, leaning over it like a sweat hog from Welcome Back, Cotter, right? It is the weirdest thing. I can't figure out what that's about. And then we have him quipping, right? Where he says, you know, you had him killed. And he's like, well, technically we paid someone else to shoot him. You know, <laughs> like, okay. Yeah. Now Wesley? is the time that we're going to get technical. I just, You're right. yeah, it's weird. It's weird. Yeah. No, it's all, it's all really weird. And like Fisk seeing Wesley as a friend, you know, like with the way that their relationship was that he, you know, he was, never like a friend but he was the closest thing that like wilson had to right but then in this episode they're playing him that way and it seems like we have a we have a director who came in for one episode right Uh so it seems to me like it maybe he wasn't familiar because a lot of the things aside from the line technically we paid someone else to shoot him like aside from that and the way that they're like debating as equals over where to move you know what move to make next right mm-hmm. um it, mostly it's just it's this style it's the way that they're they're making him so much more casual and the whole thing about wesley that works is that he is weird and robotic you know in this in this very yeah. kind of like creepy almost uncanny valley way you know <laughs> like not quite human but not really not human yeah that's how you act when you're the assistant to a man who sometimes gets mad enough to behead dudes with car doors. Right. Right. Exactly. Dial your personality down. There's enough personality in this room for everybody. Do exactly. not come in here and turn your chair around exactly. like you're a guidance counselor. What is happening? 
<laughs> no, it's so nuts. It's so weird. And I mean, I have to say, though, like the actor who plays Wesley, I like him. Like I found him. I found oh, and this yeah. is the thing. Like this episode is such a, a an exercise in internal conflict for me because there are things that I really like, but they don't work in this spot in the season and they don't yeah, work like yeah. in this like it's not consistent i liked wesley in this episode but this is not wesley this is wesley's weird twin brother it's just not right so i don't know what that was got a life that. model decoy cool he stuff. did get a life model decoy i know <laughs> no it's it's kind of nutty so i don't know like overall this episode is is confusing for me because i both really like it and respect it and also think it's just terrible. <laughs> it's it's a really, like, I don't know. I feel like there's probably words for this vis-a-vis mm-hmm. criticism. But it's like, oh, this right. if this thing existed in a vacuum, I would be very impressed with it. But as part right. of a whole, it's actually terrible. Like, it's yes. it's bad for the whole. It, it's, it's actively working against what the bigger picture is doing. So on a certain level, it doesn't matter how good it is on its own if it doesn't fit yeah like garlic is the best thing that has ever happened to humanity i would say but you don't put it in an apple pie you know what i'm saying yeah yes <laughs> yes just doesn't whose belong. idea was this i know it's a terrible terrible idea <laughs> from here on out brand it. new chipperish term of art the garlic right. in the apple pie and garlic if anybody needs Needs to know exactly what we're talking about. We will just Two refer wonderful them to things. episode eight of Daredevil season one. Do not yeah. belong together. Yes, it is definitely yeah. garlic in the apple pie. Um, so was there anything else in this episode that stood out to you or that you really liked or, or hated? Yes, I did have one thing that really stood out to me. I mean, a good thing as opposed to uh-huh. the rest of the stuff where I really don't like this episode very much. I mean, again, yeah. I think that's because it's very interesting to listen to us because I really came to this both the first time and this time on the rewatch not liking anything that went on in this episode because it so derails the bigger picture. Like it was very difficult for me to see the upshots. But Mm -hmm. a thing that I always thought was a positive is the long conversation with Madam Gal. Yeah. She is so great. She Mm -hmm. is so quietly in charge of everything. Like there's just an undercurrent of, I know you think you've been running things precious. Right. But I'm Madam Gal. (laughs) I love that. She is not afraid of him. Right. But, you know, like the thing is, Madam Gao, like if she was really that tough, she would have killed Wilson Fisk like ages ago and just gotten him because no, he's no, no. been nothing but a problem. OK, I don't want to. OK, OK. There's definitely room for discussion and I don't want to give anything away from okay. further things. But right. I I really think that Madam Gao came to this considering Wilson Fisk a useful idiot. Yeah. So she was prepared for some nonsense, you know, like she was prepared for maybe not for car door beheadings, but I I think she showed up thinking, you know how now people buy Harley Davidson's because they make all of that racket. Yeah. You know, originally they made that racket because they were really poorly made. I feel like (laughs) Madam Gal was the person who showed up and was like, I like that it's really poorly made and that it makes that music. Let's do this thing. Like, that's how she saw Wilson Fisk, I think. So I don't know. She's too good for me to think she made a mistake. You know, so. Right. Yeah, I know. And that's what I think throws me off about Madam Gal. Like, I do like her. 
I like her a lot. I mean, I love the actress. I love I love also that we have this like older Asian woman who is completely in, in charge. She's powerful. Like I like her, you know, um, yeah. but it's just like I don't understand why she lets him live because her quiet power. And this is the thing. We don't see much of Madame Gao, but what we see is fairly badass like she's not intimidated by any of this nonsense she's like whatever y'all and I guess if if I had an idea of what Wilson Fisk brought to the table like he obviously has money he's pulled all these people together he's the kingpin right he's the one running this show but she could run it better without him he just seems like more trouble than he's worth at this point you know I get it. I get you. And I'm not I'm not going to say you're wrong. I am choosing for a variety of reasons, both Madame Gal-centric mm-hmm. and other stuff that I've watched, to read yeah. this as, well, wouldn't it be great if we had a really loud, stupid figurehead that we could give to the police if we ever needed to while we skip town? Okay. Right? All right. And, and All I, right. Now, that is like a small-time crime approach, whereas they're working mm-hmm. at – but that's basically a cutout, right? A useful idiot. Right. That's what I think. Yeah. Right. Okay, so from a certain right. perspective, you could see Wilson's shaky behavior as a feature, not a bug. Okay. All right. I get that because he's the one that she can just serve up as she moves on and, and continues right, about right. her business. She's All just right. like, oh, is this whole thing falling apart? I'm a go. Enjoy your prison <laughs> I need, sentence. I need somebody you know. terrible here to go to jail for me. All right, right. Okay. All right. I get it. No one's going to be it. looking for the octogenarian Asian woman if they've right. got this big mope to stand trial. <laughs> Fair enough. All right. Well, that moves us into episode nine, Speak of the Devil. In Speak of the Devil, we open with a fractured tease showing us Daredevil in a brutal and bloody fight with a man in red who is, of course, Nobu, all dressed up for the big dance and having the time of his life. Daredevil has sustained multiple lacerations from Nobu's flying knives, and it's not looking good. But then we cut away to go back in time to Matt meeting with Father Latte, asking if he believes in the devil. Father Latte tells the story of true evil and says, yep. Fisk meets with Nobu, who is again unhappy that he didn't get the block with Mrs. Cardenas's tenement, and Fisk tells him to take out the man in the mask, and then they'll talk. Nobu is skeptical because the man in the mask has been laying low lately. Fisk says, don't you worry about a thing. A man is careless when he's emotional, and I should know. (laughs) And he has Mrs. Cardenas, the last holdout of the tenement, murdered by a junkie, thus killing like eight birds with one really evil stone. At Nelson and Murdoch, the fam gets together and decides the only way to beat their enemy is to know their enemy. So Matt goes to Vanessa's art gallery and tries to get the skinny on her boyfriend, Wilson Fisk. Vanessa says, hey, ask him yourself. He's right here. Matt and Fisk have an awkward meeting and Matt beats it out of there and goes to see Father Latte, talking about how he has to kill this guy. They have a nice philosophical talk about murder and it turns out Father Latte is against it. Vengeance is best left to God, he says, because doing evil to stop evil makes you evil, and it's just a big round robin of evil that will not end well. Matt remains quietly unconvinced. News of Mrs. Cardenas's murder reaches Nelson and Murdoch, and they go to identify the body. While Foggy and Karen drown their sorrows in all the scotch, Matt drowns his sorrows in Daredevil and heads out to find the junkie that killed her. He beats the tar out of a guy who's high as hell and about one heroin hit away from death anyway, and the guy gives up the warehouse location where he was taken to make the deal. Daredevil says he'll come back to kill the guy later. 
Daredevil goes to the warehouse where he meets Nobu and we conclude the brutal fight we've been watching in bits and pieces all along. Daredevil is bleeding and sliced up and Nobu's talking about what an honor it is to kill such a warrior and as he's about to finish Daredevil off, Daredevil manages to ping a lamp and the spark sets Nobu on fire instantly because his outfit is soaked in the flammable liquid kept in wooden casks that they cracked during the fight. As Nobu burns, Fisk comes in and thanks Daredevil for his service in taking out Nobu. In a genre convention that Lonnie hates, and I find delightful, Fisk launches into an evil monologue about how his plan all along was for Daredevil to kill Nobu, and he set up the junkie to kill Mrs. Cardenas to upset Daredevil so he'd fight Nobu and kill Nobu because that's so much easier than just shooting the guy in the head while he was at the warehouse earlier that week. Oh, we are going to have a talk about this, Lonnie. <laughs> we are going to... You can tell who We're going to chat. <laughs> we're going to chat about this. Thank okay. you very much. Daredevil stumbles to his feet and borrows Nobu's fancy flying knives since Nobu won't be needing them anymore and manages to slice Fisk's outfit with them, which sends Fisk into a fist-flying rage. You can also tell Lonnie wrote this because she's trying to get me to say as many F-words as possible in a row without saying the actual F-word. Fisk pummels Daredevil and then gets bored and orders Wesley to shoot him, but Daredevil avoids the bullets and jumps out the window and into the river where he bleeds profusely and beautifully into the water. Foggy, drunk and grieving, shows up at Matt's house and bangs on the door, wanting to talk about how they're going to avenge Mrs. Cardenas' death. He hears a noise inside and breaks through the door to find Daredevil stumbling and bleeding. Daredevil falls to the floor in front of Foggy, groaning, and just as Foggy's about to call 911, he notices that Daredevil's lower jaw looks a lot like Matt's lower jaw. He whips off the mask and discovers that Daredevil is Matt! Speak of the Devil was written by Christos Gage and Ruth Fletcher, who are credited as staff writers for all of season one, but this is the only episode they wrote themselves. This episode was directed by Nelson McCormick, and this is the only episode of Daredevil he has directed. All right, so we have more one-timers coming in here, although I think that this episode kind of sits more comfortably in the movement of the season than the last one did. Yeah, I would say this is the flip side where we have some extremely questionable structural choices in the episode. Exactly. But it fits no, you're the right. bigger picture much better. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Well, we open with the stupid fracture teas, and I hate fracture teases. And for those of you who don't know what they are, fracture teases are when you borrow from the exciting part later and you put it right up front and nobody has any idea what the hell's going on. And then you cut to now. <laughs> Just mess with the timeline for no reason. You are being more generous than you ought to be because this is not just a stupid fractured tease. This is the stupidest fractured tease. <laughs> because this is the second time I've seen this episode. And when they cut to 36 hours earlier or whatever, yeah. there's no thing, there's nothing to tell you that that's what they did. And so I right. was like, wait, what the hell's happening? Like it's. Except you see Matt and he's not sliced up and bleeding. Well, yeah. And then when we cut back, though, he's like, fine. And I'm like, wait, what's happening? Like, it's the dumbest fractured tease because it, it is it does grab my attention and then confuses me. Good job, Tiger. Right. Way to go. Right. Well done. Well done, buddy. Um, not to mention that we have Nobu. Like, all right. You know me. I love me some Nobu. Right? We didn't yeah. get near enough. Nobu. So sorry. We hardly knew ye. But this is weird. Fisk is like, I need you to find a specialist. And he's like, I know just the guy. And then he's like, oh, I get to dress up in my outfit. And he gets in. It's, it's like, me. I get it. 
I get it. It's a whole ninja thing and whatever. But he's dressed in this ridiculous outfit, which, by the way, had he not been wearing, he wouldn't have been completely engulfed in flames. That thing does not look easy to get out of. That is basically one step down from like an 18th century corseted hoop dress, right? You know, like you've got to have a whole bunch of chambermaids to get you out of that thing. <laughs> he has it on him yeah. and it's on fire. And that's just it for him. I'm like, why? 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 The, I mean, he's is he part of the hand? Is that what this thing yes. is? is he, but if he, yes. but he, then he's supposed to be able to evaporate. He can't evaporate. <laughs> okay, you cannot come bringing stuff that you learned 20 minutes ago to this episode like you knew all along he should have evaporated. I can and I will. Uh, I'm bringing it into uh, my heart. BT dubs. I wish he had yeah. evaporated. That would have been amazing. <laughs> I wish he had. That would have been that would have been very cool. I would have been confused, but at least I would think, you know, at least he's standing there on fire and then the clothes just drop to the ground <gasps> while still on fire and weird smoke comes out of them. That is like 1000 times more interesting. And also I would retroactively justify the getup for you. I feel you would be like, right. oh, okay, that's weird as shit. <laughs> it would, it would retroactively justify the getup. But I mean, like getting dressed up, here's the thing. Like, I get that you're part of this, like, ninja group and you've got the outfit and all this kind of stuff and whatever. I can tell by your tone that you do not, in fact, get it. You are okay. being very dismissive of ancient ninja clans. <laughs> I'm so sorry if that is, like, <laughs> culturally insensitive of me. So I do apologize. But no, but I just feel like you're not buying in. How do you it fight is. in that? Okay, okay. I am not going to defend costuming choices on a show where our hero has been running around in black Under Armour punching muggers. Okay, look, at least the black Under Armour is something that moves. It's flexible. It's not too hot. So when you're fighting somebody, you're not going to get overheated or anything. I mean, the kind of hydration that Nobu must have had to do before he started this fight is insane. Not to mention the fact that he's got this big dress on and he's like waving these knives all around. It's just, it doesn't make any sense to me. Like when you fight, you need to be like boxers fight in shorts. That's it. You know, because you got to be free. You got to be able to move around, you know, like having robes on like a Supreme Court justice. You know, what is up with that? <laughs> Ruth Bader Ginsburg does not fight in her clothes. She doesn't do her ninja shit in her clothes and her robe. I'm just saying. I don't feel that this is an appropriate place for me to defend the clothing choices of 18th and 17th century Japanese warriors. But I just want you to know I could. <laughs> <laughs> He's a 21st century Japanese businessman. <laughs> Who is also a ninja. Who's also a ninja. All right. Whatever. Okay. That whole thing is ridiculous. I, it is ridiculous. It is ridiculous. It is, however, a, a ridiculous that I really like. And it makes me wish that we had seen a bunch more other ninjas back in the Black Sky episode with Stick, right? To give us maybe a little context. Exactly, so this, this context for the hand. Out of nowhere, yes. right. It just, yes, it, the, exactly. the outfit feels ridiculous. I mean, he looks very pretty. He looks very pretty and all of his well, handmaidens awesome. must have been very proud. The law of awesome kicked in. He looks great, so it's completely justified. 
So it's completely fine. And honestly, like, obviously, this isn't a documentary. I'm just saying I watched that and I thought that was was crazy. No, I get it. I really do wish they teased a little more of the hands. Not a lot, right? Like, if you had just had the one episode where instead of fighting Japanese people with machine guns, they had been actual ninjas, you know, when Stick Mm -hmm. was in town. And then we don't hear a peep out of ninjas for, like, five episodes. And then all of a sudden there is this, like, fantastic super ninja then that uh, yes please like yeah at least would have set the stage but also like okay so so there's this thing with superheroes right that you've talked about that they have to have the outfit right that the outfit and the costume is a huge part of that identity so nobu in this sense i mean is he is this he's part of a group so i guess it doesn't make him like a super villain but is is that part of the aesthetic that's something that we we need to have him in that outfit okay i would say broadly yes okay like i mm-hmm. want superheroes to fight super villains and this right. is a thing that the mcu as a whole does not do uniformly well you okay. know I mean, like, really on the label, costumed criminals, you know. Mm -hmm. Uh, They don't all have to be low-rent hoods with ice guns, but, you know, one (laughs) or two wouldn't go amiss, right? Come on. Right. Um, (laughs) And with Daredevil, the the fascinating thing to me is having read all of Miller's Daredevil once upon a time is that it really is broadly, like, by and large, very gritty and and street level, which is why Mm -hmm. it's friggin' crazy when a bunch of ninjas show up. (laughs) You know, so I like the weird ass escalation of it. And I do think that an outfit elevates somebody from scary bad guy to costumed criminal, you know? Um, Right. The questions of identity for costumed criminals are not typically quite to the same level that they are as superheroes, but they they are an element, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, Captain Cold is a guy with a freeze gun until he puts on the outfit and starts calling himself Captain Cold. You know, right. um, mm-hmm. I recently talked about an episode of Batman, the animated series where the Riddler in his second appearance is spending all of his time erasing the history of Edward Nigma so that he will literally be an enigma. Like, that's awesome. Mm-hmm. So, yes, yeah, sometimes <laughs> the identity stuff is elevated to the level of the superhero, but it's always mm-hmm. an aspect of it, I would say. And and it's nice to actually get some costumed criminals on this Netflix show. By the way, don't hold your breath. We're not going to get a whole bunch of them. So, <laughs> Well, I mean, with the gritty, like, um, you know, the gritty noir of it, yeah. it feels a little out of place to me. Like, it felt a little ridiculous to me, but like at the same time, you know, without having that context of this is where this is coming from, right? You know, yeah. so no, for I me, agree. like I may not be able to appreciate it so much. Although I do appreciate Nobu. I always appreciate Nobu. I like his right. whole, you are worthy opponent. It is an honor to claim your life. <laughs> like, That's like kind of, I mean, it's kind of kung fu movie nonsense, but I'm here for it, yeah. you know? Like yeah. there's, there's other stuff going on besides this pissing match between Matt and Fisk. You know, right? I don't want to look at it forever because it's not the main story. But I like these suggestions that there's bigger, weirder stuff going on, you know. Right. Well, and it is weird because here we have like his job is to kill this guy. Right. So they have it set up so that this guy will, you know, beat up the junkie and find the, the warehouse and whatever. He knows he's coming. Right. So that's the whole thing. It's easier and more direct to just shoot him. You know, yes. instead of getting into Aha. this big fight with him, 
Okay, except then you will have alienated the very dangerous organization for which he works. Wait, how would he have done that? His job was to kill him. If he kills him, he kills him. Once again, you are not taking seriously the fact that he is not fighting a criminal. He's fighting a ninja. Ninjas do not just shoot you in the head. Ninjas kill you like ninjas. But Nobu's a businessman. <laughs> Nobu is who a is also a ninja. Who is also a ninja? So Matt okay. Murdock is a lawyer who is also a ninja, and he's blind. Right, but he doesn't bring legal pads to a fight. Like, <laughs> and this time when Nobu was fighting, no legal pads, only no legal awesome, pads. as you say, flying knives. <laughs> Okay, the fly knives, yes, which are which are very fun and I like a martial arts aspect coming into this a lot. I do. I, I no no, I no. Don't so I'm that. with you. It's all very extra. It's all just it is immediately mm -hmm. turned to eleven with almost no groundwork laid. And and because I spend most of my time watching MCU things going, turn it to eleven already, I was ready oh. for it, right? Okay. But I really feel like if they had just thrown some actual honest-to-God black-clad hand ninjas into the episode yeah. with Stick or something, that would, or, or have them be part of the killing of the Russians in one location, something, then this would have been much less out of nowhere. Yeah. Right. It could have given us a little bit of context. Okay. So here's my question for you, though. Does all this extra ridiculous stuff, does it conflict with the dark, gritty you know, ultra real noir. Okay. I'm, I'm going to reject the premise of your question, but then okay. I will still answer it. Okay. The premise okay. that I'll reject is the suggestion that noir is somehow ultra realistic. Well, I mean, wasn't that what you were saying before though, that it's like this, it's, it's not ultra realistic, but it's like this, it's looking for like this real gritty, grimy, you know, um, it doesn't put a sheen on anything. Yes, it does conflict with it to a certain extent. I, I But okay. for me, the fact that it's a noir superhero story mm -hmm. allows for some level of the over the top or some level of okay. the ridiculous to intrude. And it is definitely like a counterpoint, you know, it's the, the unexpected mm -hmm. flavor that enhances the whole thing. Right. Um, would be my suggestion. And at the same time, agreeing with you that they could have telegraphed it literally at all, you know? Yeah. But, but to me, that is that is like the seasoning. That's the spice where I'm like, and that's how I know that this isn't just some guy with anger issues tying a scarf around his head. Like, this is a superhero right. story. Right. So it puts you into that space. Okay. Yeah, no, yeah. I get it. And I mean, the thing is, like, I'm not necessarily, like, I'm not necessarily saying this isn't good. I'm just saying that, like, I'm caught in between this space where I'm not sure where I'm supposed to be. Yes. I No, I get that. And and here, I'll give you an example to keep your eye on the lookout yes. for mm -hmm. months from now, to be honest. But if they had telegraphed ninjas for Daredevil and then this happened, we would be like, yay, Daredevil's fighting ninjas. Yeah. When we get to Jessica Jones, for instance, any introduction of ninjas would be too much for her. Yeah. Because of the story yeah. that they're telling. But when we jump further ahead to Defenders and all of a sudden... <laughs> Jessica Jones has to punch ninjas? I'm like, fuck yes. <laughs> this is the shit. In her show, that would have been terrible. And here, right. the fact that she is punching ninjas and then turns to literally anybody and is like, what the hell is my life? I'm punching ninjas is right. wonderful. 
<laughs> right? That's that kind of like proper escalation and teasing that I that that would have worked better here. I th- so yeah, right. I it's at odds. It's not at odds in a way that breaks it for me. And I really wish that they had done a better job leading up to it so that it wasn't just kind of seeding it a little bit. Yeah. Right. Because imagine, and it's, not necessarily, it's not like yeah. Stick wasn't weird as hell, right? Like another no, blind Stick person totally... with a sword shows up, throw some ninjas in right. that episode. We'd believe every word of it. We'd <laughs> there never you go. question exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah, so. It would absolutely fit in. I think, yeah, I think the fact that we're here at episode nine of a 13 episode season, this is the first <laughs> time we've seen ninjas. And I'm just, I'm just kind of thrown aback. But aside from that, you know, I like Nobu. I've always liked Nobu. I'm very sorry to see him go. I think it would have been really interesting to keep him around. But I do understand that, of course, Wilson Fisk has to slowly kill off everybody he's ever worked with. Speaking of, let me just go to this yeah, because I right. know we're going to have an argument about this. Fisk walks in. And says, ha ha ha, my plan all along was that you would find this place and you would fight Nobu. And then, of course, you would win and you would kill Nobu. And despite the fact that, like, you know, Daredevil won by, like, the skin of his teeth, like, barely. <laughs> so, yeah, his, this ridiculous plan that he had no control over, that he had no way of being able to say who was going to do what or how all this was going to work out. And let me tell you something, Nobu hadn't worn that outfit, then the fire thing probably wouldn't have happened also if they hadn't cracked into what also if they didn't like have wooden breakable casks of some kind of flammable liquid just i don't know what that was was that whiskey what was it that lit him on fire um those were casks of liquid scene escalation oh okay liquid scene escalation good good mm-hmm. to know That's i was just what curious they were. and it's always yeah. important of course every warehouse has to be full though so i'm going to step back from that criticism obviously every not warehouse justified. in a superhero story has to have those right has like to have them absolutely them. i mean let me <laughs> refer you just just yes. to show you that i'm not entirely off base there let me refer you to a certain scene of indiana jones and the last crusade where a mm-hmm. centuries-old castle goes up like it's made out of flash paper sure because yes. it was built out of Fair scene enough. escalation. I'm just, you know. It was built out of scene escalation. No, I get it. I get it. That's fine. Um, but here we have Fisk coming in, giving his whole evil monologue, which, by the way, I hate that. I hate that in every context. Whenever the, the bad guy comes in and says, aha, I see that everything I've done doesn't make sense. But please, here, let me spend the next five minutes putting as much scaffolding on this story as I can to explain to you why this was my plan all along. You know, like... I hate that. (laughs) But you liked it, though, right? Yes, because that is proper supervillainy. Okay. So, one of the things that separates supervillains from just regular (laughs) bad people Uh is a flair for the dramatic. Okay. Okay, which means that not only do they think they're the smartest person in the room, they need everybody else to think it, too. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. Now, I will also point out that I feel like you were already tripped up by the ninja outfit because (laughs) Fisk's plan is not wildly Byzantine. He was like, I hate your ass and I hate Nobu's ass. And so I'm going to see to it that you two fight and whoever wins, I win. And if I get a little bit lucky, you murder each other or (laughs) you create a space where I can show up and murder whoever's barely hanging on and I win double. Like, really, what he did was just buy three lottery tickets. Okay. But, I'm just, I mean, you know, it's not he... that complicated a plan. 
It is, though, because how does he know that Daredevil is going to get so incensed? Like, he has Mrs. Cardenas okay, killed, that's right, fair. to upset that Daredevil, but he doesn't know that Matt is personally involved with, you know, with Mrs. Cardenas, and then, like, it's just, that's it's all, fair. it's all so incredibly, like, intricate and requires him to be able to predict everything that everybody is going to do, and, like, you know, what if Crazy Ex-Girlfriend had been on that night? Matt might have been home, right? You know? <laughs> he finds this, um, this junkie, you know, and, and, and here's another thing, too. I'm sorry, but beating up the junkie? was really oh, uncomfortable gross. for me. It's that guy gross. was on the verge of death as it was. And I understand he's mad about Mrs. Cardenas, but like this guy is not in control of himself. He is an addict. He's on the verge of death. And you're throwing this guy across the room? I mean, no, all I you agree. have to do is sit there and ask him a question. He's high. He'll tell you, you know? So I understand he's mad about it. I'll spin this around to where this actually makes makes Fisk's plan even more clever. Yeah. Because I'm sure that Fisk, who is a smart man, sat in his office and was like, what clues could I leave so that Daredevil will find Nobu? Well, I can't mm -hmm. leave him any actual clues because he is the worst investigator in the world. <laughs> however, <laughs> however, I know for a fact that he will beat the shit out of anybody to get information. I'm uh -huh. going to give him a punching bag to give him the information. See, Fisk is brilliant. He saw all of this. This is just pieces in a puzzle for him. Yeah. Yeah. You're I not buying it. I don't it. know. It's just. It's, and I am way so, overselling it. <laughs> it's so. No, I love it. I love that you're arguing for it. I think it's great. It's just I'm still not there. Like, and I hate the evil monologue. The evil monologue drives me crazy. And then he starts pounding Daredevil. And let me just see. He's really, really mad at Daredevil. Probably madder at Daredevil than he was at the guy that he beheaded with the limousine door. Or all the people he blew up. Or, you know, the person that he, you know, beat to death. You know, his dad that he beat with a hammer. Whatever. Like, he is really mad at Daredevil. So he starts beating on Daredevil. And then turns to Wesley and says, yeah, you go ahead and put a bullet in him. Like, yeah, no, yeah. this is the guy. No. who beats him until he's a bloody dead pulp and then dismembers his body for fun. Like, yep. that's what he would do. So I didn't really buy that. And then, of course, you know, Daredevil is able to avoid all of the gunshots coming from Wesley and jumps out the window and lands in the water and somehow makes it home. <laughs> no, I'm going to say that the moment that Fisk says, I'm bored, go shoot him, is the moment where I was like, well, you just broke the rest of this very clever episode for me because right. you're right. Like the whole point was to put him in this place where Fisk could beat him to death with his bare hands. Have him right. hit him so hard the the floor cracks and he falls right. through it to the water or something. But like you can't dodge a punch, but you can dodge a bullet. Come right. on. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. No, no, no. I, I really like, I mean, again, I'm kind of here for the genre stuff, right? So I like uh -huh. the ninja and I like a little bit of monologue and I like a little bit mm -hmm. of Xanatos Gambit, which by the way, that's the TV tropes uh, name for the multi-layered yes. supervillain plan that's way too Byzantine is a Xanatos Gambit. Oh, Thank you, mid-90s like animation. The Gargoyles <laughs> cartoon is where that comes from. Um, I like all that stuff, right? Like, uh -huh. I, I want them to do the work and make it good, but I like all that stuff. But I'm also like, what do you mean you're bored? This was your whole week. <laughs> right. This is everything you live for. Yeah, you're TiVoing Crazy Ex-Girlfriend right now so you can be here to beat 
daredevil into a bloody pulp what is this i'm bored get the gun stuff yeah i'm not with that (laughs) yeah no it doesn't make any sense to me so anyway all of that aside there were a couple of things that i did like in this episode i like father (laughs) latte yeah he's great that whole their whole conversation is so good it's so good right well i love that whole thing where he's like there's a wide gulf between inaction and murder and he goes on this whole thing and he's so right and he's like you know are you struggling with the fact that you don't want to kill this man but have to or that you don't have to kill him but want to and i love that i love that whole thing and then he says you know i don't think that you want to kill him i think you went there looking for a reason not to when he's talking about matt going to see vanessa and meeting up with yes. this guy at the art gallery you know it's just it's so great and i love also in the, in the beginning where he's like do you think the devil exists and so father latte starts his story and then he's like so you don't think the devil exists and he's like am i done <laughs> i okay yes there is so much amazing stuff going on with as you say father latte um yes <laughs> i love the fact that he just has no time for Matt Murdock shit. Listen, I know you yeah. go out and punch the shit out of muggers, but you will speak when I am done, young man. Exactly. Is fantastic. <laughs> Love that. And I yeah. really think that there is a place where this kind of making text, the subtextual yes. character stuff could be really heavy handed and stupid, but they wrote yeah. this so well and created... Wow. Like, right from jump, this need for Matt to talk to somebody about this stuff. And he knows about Seal yeah. of uh, the Seal of Confession, and, and he's very mm-hmm. Catholic, and it just makes sense. And then they get this guy to just kill this performance, you know? Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And make all of that stuff textual in a way that isn't them telling us we're stupid as viewers, you know? It's exactly. So yeah. good. Yeah, yeah. No, it is. It's really nice. And there's just a bunch of ways it could have not been. And it really is. Oh, yeah. So that's yeah. wonderful. This is the kind of thing yeah. that's a really risky proposition because, you know, but I mean, I think the way it was written, I think the fact that Father Latte has an edge, you know, that it doesn't yeah. feel like he exists simply as a mirror to reflect Matt back at himself, you know, as opposed yeah. to like he's a real character. And I, I like him. Like, I loved him in the earlier episodes when he was like, I got an espresso machine. <laughs> Yeah, and when when he figures out who Matt is, Mm -hmm. just because he's like, listen, the neighborhood's not that big. Everybody knows who Battling Jack Murdoch is. Get real. You know, is... Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's... Yeah, it's really good. I really love all of that stuff a lot. Again, it could have been so heavy-handed, but just framing the question right there and and hanging it on Matt's own desires, right? That it's not... This is not about a good choice or a bad choice. This is about Mm -hmm. you want to make the worst possible choice and are trying to talk yourself out of it. Yeah. Get real is so good. No, it is really good. Like that philosophical stuff can come off heavy handed. It can be really difficult, but when it's done well, like honestly, it's catnip for me. I loved Mm -hmm. it here. I loved that philosophical discussion. You know, men have used the atrocities of their enemies to justify their own throughout history. Like that is a really good question to be asking yourself, especially because this whole thing we're like, okay, you know, Matt is, you know, trying to help people like, is he really a good guy? Like he just beat up that junkie. And yeah. I mean, when you have such a, the power differential between Daredevil and a guy who is high, who's uh, obviously his body is failing him, like you just can't punch that person. Like you have to find another way. So I think that um, 
the fact that he would punch a junkie like that and punch somebody who was at that stage in their addiction. You know, I keep saying the word junkie. That's not a good word. That's a really dismissive, dehumanizing word. I don't mean it. It's just the way it was presented. Yeah. No, I was about to say that is that is like almost the genre name for this character, right? Like he is not a drug addict. He is not a realistic depiction. Well, I mean, he he is of some um, I mean, I'm with you. I, I think I think probably steering away from that nomenclature is uh, is right. It's really but at the dehumanizing. Same time, yeah. At mm-hmm. the same time, that's what they're doing. Like they are giving that you is what they're a, doing. Yeah. You know, junkie number one is probably who that guy was in the script. Like that's what they're giving you on purpose. And which is why it's interesting to me that I'm not sure they make the best effort to to show this yeah. as a low point for Matt. It it feels like a real low point for me though. Like to, well, right, that's the thing to too. Us. I am not clear that the show understands how bad it is for Matt to punch that guy. Right. Like that right. guy. Yes, he killed Mrs. Cardenas, and I get it. That's a bad thing. But this guy is on the verge of death as it is. He's sick. He has an addiction. Like he's he did a really bad thing and like i you know i'm sad that mrs cardenas is gone that was horrible that he did it you know but he was also being used by people like he was he was the gun you know he wasn't necessarily the guy who shot the gun he just didn't you know and i'm i'm not saying it's okay for you know people who are drug addicted to kill people that's not okay no you're you're nailing father latte's insight Right. Like you are watching a scene that should be demonstrating another man's evil does not make you good. Yes. And I think that they meant to do that. I think that's what they did, that they didn't like we're seeing it. So obviously they sold it, but I, I feel like they didn't sell it hard enough. I'm not clear that they thought it was a bad thing for him to hit that guy. And that's what I need to know. It's hard to go from Father Latte saying another man's evil doesn't make you good to that scene and not think that somebody was doing that on purpose but that's why i guess i would say they just didn't do it hard enough that would be you know it's not clear we don't even have a moment from matt where he seems to like really look at himself and be horrified exactly by what he's done like we need that we need a textual acknowledgement that hitting this guy is not okay that this guy like if he's about to hit him and he doesn't or if he hits him and then he just feels terrible because this guy is a mess you know, yeah. and that is punching down. Like when there's that much of a power differential, you don't hit that person, you know? No. I mean, that person yes, has no ability to physically fight back. And that person, all you have to do is ask him. He would have given you information anyway. The whole point, the whole reason why Fisk chose him is because he was going to break. Because he was going to tell Matt right away where they were. I mean, you that's know? the theory. So, if we're going with yeah. a Xanatos gambit, then yeah, I need to put yeah. a weak link in this chain. And that guy looks like a pretty weak link. That was the point. Yeah, yeah. But they exactly. don't sit with it. They don't sit with it. Exactly. Yeah. So I don't know. Like that bothered me a little bit. Um, Matt going to see Vanessa, that whole scene. And he just, and of course, Wilson Fisk just happens to be there in that moment. But Fisk seems like he seems like he's on to Matt in that moment. There's, he stares after him. They talk about Mrs. Cardenas. They make that connection. Matt, you know, beats it out of there. And it seems like Fisk makes the connection. And using Mrs. Cardenas to upset Daredevil, you know, feels it just it feels weird to me. I don't think we get clarity on that either, because I thought in my notes, I say, so he knows it's Matt. And you're like, nope, I, I don't think so. Now, I do love the idea like like uh, 
I'm warming up to this as we discuss it. I love the idea that he suspects because there's always this part where somebody goes, I wonder if that guy's daredevil. And then they have to stop yeah. and go, wait, he's blind. I mean, uh-huh. like that is, I don't think we can underestimate the leap that that requires, you know, right. Um, mm-hmm. even, even in a superhero universe, you know, that there's a whole, yeah. yeah, but he's blind. I mean, you know, even foggy jumping ahead a little bit is like, so is all this made up? And that guy's known him for, right. you know, 15 years. But Foggy's known him for all this time. Like, if you just met somebody and they have a I pair of sunglasses. I would wonder if the blindness was fake. Yes, yes. And a stick. I wish we yeah, had a little interiority could... there. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. It's weird because I think that he he seems, and I feel like the show, by, by showing us the way that Wilson Fisk looks after him when he leaves, has that suspicious look on his face, that he knows. It feels like he knows. Not to mention the fact that they, he had Wesley engage these two deliberately in the earlier part of the right so how do they not yeah so it seems like he knows but we don't have any clarity on that so no i think um i think you've convinced me like i'm warming up to this idea that he suspects you know uh-huh. and, and is probably trying to figure out how the blindness piece fits into the puzzle but yeah i know i think right. i think you're right and i think i just missed it because i'm a little too close to these two guys's relationship you know yeah, he seems he seems on to it to me. Um, all right, so is there anything else in this episode that you wanted to talk about? Aside from the fact that it was broken into little bits, how did you feel about this fight? Oh, with uh, it felt a little overdone to me. It felt a little overcooked. Um, and I guess, you know, for... If for people who, who go to this kind of action adventure, like you want the huge choreographed fight, you want the ridiculous outfits, like you want all of that stuff. But um, the the slicing of it, like when he slices through his oh back, when, he's yeah, like, yeah, yeah. when he whaps the, the thing around him and like pulls him across the floor, at the, when he gets shoved onto the, um, the table by Fisk and he moves a little bit and like the, broken torn blueprint is stuck to the blood in his back all of it was just a little bit much for me i just like i and this is the thing like i don't like violence in general like when we have something that's really well choreographed and like really good but this was so incredibly bloody we open the first shot you know he's getting hit in the face you see the blood flying out of his mouth like there's just blood everywhere so it was a little bit too much for me what did you think about it well i wanted to talk to you about it actually for this reason, because I felt like mm-hmm. there could have been a story here. Like we've kind of yeah. hit upon the fact that like if, if they use the action to tell the story or progress the story, you're, mm-hmm. you're going to be a lot more amenable to it. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, they live in this weird space where Matt is super competent, hyper competent mm-hmm. as a combatant. Yeah. Right. Um, but we also need his crime fighting to be self-flagellation. So he has yeah. to get beat to shit constantly. You know, Mm -hmm. and so when he walks into this place and he's so confident, Matt is so confident, Mm -hmm. despite the fact that there is a guy in a ninja outfit, you know, who just walked in Um, and and to for a little context in my head there, like one of the reasons costumes are so fundamental to superheroes is because a superhero costume. So it's all bright colors and stuff says two things. One, I am more powerful than you, but Mm -hmm. I'm here to help. Right Mm -hmm. now, the flip of that with the costume criminal is I am much more powerful than you and I'm here to hurt you, you know, and -hmm. it's like that guy has that level of confidence and walks into that room and Matt is talking smack right away. Uh It just 
I feel like he should have gotten beat up a lot less up till this point so uh-huh. that then when Nobu just rips nine shades of hell out of him, we're like, no, he's not supposed to get beat. You know, it's like they right. want to have both things and it doesn't quite work. Yeah. And I just wanted to see if, if I was all in my head there, or if you picked up on some of that also. No, I just, it was all too much for me from the beginning. So I kind of tapped out early. Like whenever the fight scenes were on, I had to look the other way and I couldn't really engage that much with it. You know, it was just, it was really hard for me to watch because it was just so, so brutal. Um, I only have two other little bits. They're both things in Uh our notes that I just feel like the a-holes would be really entertained by. Uh, One of them is that Lonnie created a heading that says Matt is not a good detective. So she's (laughs) getting me. She gets me. (laughs) Got that and there from are you, man. several bullets underneath there upholding that point. So <laughs> I really like that. I also really appreciate, and I'm about to earworm all the a-holes that get it, that right here in our notes is Donde yes. Esta La Biblioteca and a link to uh, the community Spanish rap. Uh, because yes. I cannot hear that phrase without also immediately saying, Mi amo bone la araña discoteca. I can't. I can't. <laughs> And all the people that live in my house are the same way. Right. Anybody who's not familiar with that, we will make sure to put the link in the show notes. And if you haven't seen Community, definitely go give it a watch because it's a lot of fun. So that's all I got. Did you have anything else for this episode? No, I think that pretty much does it for me. So that moves us into the 10th episode, Nelson v. Murdoch. In Nelson v. Murdoch, Matt wakes up in his apartment, stitched up and surrounded by bloody gauze. Foggy is upset, and he demands that Matt tell him everything. We flash back to how they met in college as roommates, where after a brief moment of, oh my god, you're not gay, are you? They bond over chasing women. This is clearly the most healthy masculinity we have ever seen. (laughs) Gal meets with Fisk, understandably disconcerted by how all their business partners are turning up beheaded, blown up, and set on fire. And she tells Fisk to choose between light and shadow and choose wisely. At Matt's, Foggy is rifling through his things while he gets the whole story from Matt as he brings him up to date on everything we've learned through the season. Those guys need to start making some money because if Foggy had Netflix, he'd be all caught up by now. But for now, Matt has to explain it all and we have to suffer through more flashbacks of the two of them getting so drunk that Matt almost tells Foggy about his special abilities and whatever. Meanwhile, Ben Yurick is trying to balance caring for his ailing wife, Doris, with figuring out his deck of cards serial killer board, and instead breaks into Nelson and Murdoch and scares the hell out of Karen. Hasn't she been through enough, Ben? (laughs) He gives her a shoebox full of research. He's out of the game. He tells her that he has to take care of Doris full time because he isn't able to keep her in a nursing home where she currently is. Karen convinces him to run upstate with her to take a look at another nursing home, but it turns out they're not there for a tour. Karen found Fisk's mom. Matt tells Foggy the story of how he first started beating up the bad people, saying he heard a man molesting his daughter in an apartment down the block. He beat the hell out of the guy and told him that if he ever touched that girl again, he'd know. Foggy is not impressed. At the nursing home, Fisk's mother tells Ben and Karen that Fisk killed his father. Meanwhile, Fisk has Leland do some damage control with Gal while he glad hands around town, collecting donations for his organization to save Hell's Kitchen. At a charity gala, a bunch of people start foaming at the mouth after drinking the champagne, including Vanessa. 
In flashbacks, we see Matt and Foggy decide that they can't work for the soulless Landman and Zack and agree to go into a practice together. Now, in Matt's apartment, Foggy hears the whole story and decides he can't do this anymore, and he breaks up with Matt. At the office, he clears out his stuff and throws the Nelson and Murdoch sign he had made for their business in the trash. Nelson v. Murdoch was written by Luke Calto, who is a story editor for season one, but this is the only episode he writes this season. This episode was directed by Farron Blackburn, who directed World on Fire earlier in the season. All right, so I have almost nothing to say about this episode because it's all kind of pointless. It's all flashbacks. I, There's I not actually it. much happening. I hate all of it. I hate all of it. <laughs> I, I hate every yeah. single bit of it except for the cliffhanger. Literally, that's the only thing Except I like. for the cliffhanger. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I mean, there's a couple of things like, um, you know, there's the moment with Leland where he, where he says, I think you're unsettling half the time. See me lighting a match when he's talking to Wesley. So I like Fair that. Fair enough. I take it back. That's I right. That I should funny. say Leland and Gao are both a delight. I hate everything else. <laughs> right. Gao, when <laughs> she sits down with Fisk. You know, at the beginning, and they're by the little, you know, and she's trying to make the useful idiot less annoying, right? You know, which I'm I'm subscribing to your theory now, you know, the, the useful idiot theory, because I can see that. Yeah, I think you made a good argument. Um, so, I mean, that was kind of like a nice moment, although she's talking to him and she's like, you know, you have to choose between light and shadow. And like, dude has chosen shadow. Like, in what way is there a struggle within him for goodness? <laughs> I feel like Gal was more like, you need to decide between shadow and pitch blackness. Which is it going to be? Right. <laughs> By the way, I'd prefer shadow because that's where business right. gets done. You know, yeah. And they're both, both her and Leland are like, yeah, since you started dating this woman, man. Like, they're all blaming everything, you know, on the woman. Like, Fisk's erratic behavior is suddenly because of her when I think Fisk's whole brand is erratic behavior. Like, yeah. this is kind of who this yeah. guy is. It's coincidental. It's not causal. I mean, it's technically accurate. Yeah. He went off the rails yeah. when Vanessa showed up, but I don't think we can hang that on Vanessa. I don't think he was on the rails before that, though. How much on the rails was he? I mean, he his dinner with Vanessa got interrupted, and so he beheaded, you know, uh, the, the Russian guy. And, you know, I'm not going to say that's not an overreaction. Like, I, I definitely think that's an overreaction <laughs> for having your dinner so little, interrupted. Yeah, that's yeah. just me. Right. Much. Um, but it's it's all like I don't know. It's just it's it's weird, and you know, correlation is not causation. You know, yeah. he was always going down this road. This is always where he was going to go. But it's it's just this whole like Yoko Ono thing. Like, what the hell? You know, as soon as she shows up, they're like, nope, it's this woman's fault that you're you know not not working with us anymore. Um, now I'm going to help you out with Gao a little bit because I think she says that to Leland because she knows Leland yes. will buy that. Okay. All right, you know, but doesn't doesn't she say that to Fisk? Sure, I think she yeah, does. but again, useful idiot. Yeah, okay, fair enough, fair enough, setting him she off in the right way. She knows he's right. not going to put Vanessa aside. You know, she knows that, yeah. so she's just like, mm, poke, 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 poke. I'm going to go over here and watch you explode. Tick tock, tick tock. Exactly. I mean, because <laughs> this is not the first Wilson Fisk, I think, that she's dealt with. Exactly. I have created a an entire sort of unseen backstory of uh, of Daredevil where Madame Gao is actually in charge. And let me tell you, I am not entirely crazy. 
No, I think you got some good stuff there. And I think, honestly, it makes a better story. If we had a little more textual, like, evidence, a little textual certainty that the the people creating this show were on top of that idea. <laughs> like, oh, I wouldn't yeah, no, like that. Like, That's just, my head canon. Yeah. Right. There's certain things that we're filling in that actually make it better. But, like, we need to know that, that the people actually running and writing the show are, are thinking about that stuff, too. But, like, aside from that, like, the flashbacks with Matt and Fo- I don't care. When they're oh, sitting on the steps care. and he almost tells him that he has special abilities and then, you know, doesn't. I don't care. Like, I don't yeah. care about Landman and Zach. Yeah. I don't care about the fact that they were disillusioned because their their law firm was doing slimy things. We knew things. it. I mean... Right. We, we knew already all have already. all of this. Exactly. So none of it matters. Then we also have Foggy getting all of this information from Matt, which, by the way, is information we already know. I don't need Matt to explain all the stuff, meeting Stick and learning his abilities and all. We know that. We've already gone through that. So having him tell us about it is not something that's really helpful. So this this episode just feels like a waste. I do like the tension between Matt and Foggy. And I know I made fun of the breakup scene, you know, and I was I was mocking it a little bit in the um No, in that's the exactly what it is. But I mean, you, you remember I mentioned back in the 60s, the comic books were all Karen loves Matt, Foggy loves Karen, Foggy loves Matt, Matt loves Daredevil. Like it's that's right. it's on the label. It's on the label. <laughs> You're making fun, but it but is 100%. But they're, I like that they're, I like that they're close. I like that it is a, a male bonded friendship where, yeah, yeah. you know, they are allowed to have deep feelings for each other. They're both crying. And I like that. I like mm-hmm. that, that this, this friendship is a brotherhood. It matters so much yes, to both of them. Yes. So I actually really do like that. If you had cut this episode, everything in this episode down to like five minutes you know, and then just yeah. filled in with stuff that was actual storytelling, then I think I would have liked it a lot more, you know. Um, I, it, you know, we've got Karen and Ben you, going to see Fisk's yeah. mom. And why why she would say, here this guy is, his wife who has some kind of dementia, some and a very young dementia, she didn't look that old, like, mm-hmm. that's tragic. And here he is trying to get on with his life. He gives her the shoebox because he says, I don't want to do this anymore. And he is talking about how he has to focus on taking care of his wife. And she, under false pretenses, drags him three hours upstate lying to him about what they're doing, pulling him into the exact thing he just said he didn't want to do, um, while setting him up for the idea that she might have an answer to help his wife. Like, this is, I had not liked Karen before. I hate Karen in this episode. I agree. And this is where I actually start to be interested in her as a character. Like, the, mm-hmm. I don't like her, but this is a Karen mm-hmm. that I am interested in watching because she has watched powerful men and i mean that's both it's fisk it's her boss at union allied frankly it's daredevil Mm -hmm. like she has watched powerful men get away with everything now she thinks daredevil's a good guy but still it's not like he's right by the book right and Mm -hmm. she has decided either consciously or unconsciously that the only way she can make a difference here is to just become cold and start using people to get the information out yeah, but she doesn't need to do that to Ben. She could have gone up there and talked to that woman on her own. She doesn't need to lie to him and say, I may have the answer for your wife. I think she'd already been up there. And that the whole 
the whole subterfuge was because if she'd said, let me show you one more thing, he would have said no. Right. In which case he has the right to say no. Oh, but no, to, that's right. I, She's I mean, a user. She's a user now. No, it's horrible. It's yeah, horrible yeah. to, first of all, like completely ignore what he just told her uh-huh. and then to use his wife to motivate him to go upstate with her. Like, that's cruel. That's, I mean, no, that's I not agree. just cold. Like that's it's horrible. So I hate Karen. I hate no. I hate her. This episode. I, I think do that's not like awful. her. I do mm-hmm. not. Yeah, yeah. This should this should be um, this should be. I am a very interested viewer. Not I endorse this life choice. You know, like uh, right. I, this is a Karen that I actually am interested to watch. Whereas up till now she's been very much a prop. You know, she's um, been a little milk toasty. Sure. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Um. So yeah, I don't. I don't like her. I don't want to like get drinks with her and hang out, but I like watching this development of the character for whatever that's worth. Right. But that's what bugs me about it though. What bugs me about it is that we, I think are supposed to like her. We're supposed to look at this and say, Oh, what a plucky heroine she is. Right. Um, Despite what she's doing to Ben, who by the way has done nothing but support her and be good to her and try to help her and protect her. It's, terrible so i really super hate her in this episode um but you know we get them they go they talk to the mom they find out that wilson fisk killed his father what does that have to do with pretty much i mean aside from the fact that it's bringing up something that happened to him when he was a child how does that help them you can't go back and yeah it's not damning at all it's certainly not in any way more damning i mean certainly it is not the story that he's telling about his life in public now. But I well, mean, right. I can immediately imagine that they, if they bring this to light and he, and his response is, well, of course that's not the story I tell in public. It's not, it's not the thing I want to define my life. You know, um, well, I was right. a minor. Yeah, and he did I didn't know what I was his doing. Mother. Ex- he yes. was beating my mother. He was going to kill my mother. I mean, in essence, if you're, if you're protecting somebody else, that still is self-defense. Right. Yes, I mean, I mean, it's certainly ju- there's a justification there, but on top of that, yeah. I was a minor. I He's I made a, child. a I made a, I was a child who made a decision in the moment to protect my mother, and everything awful that happened after that was my mother's doing. It's not like all of a sudden yeah. I was in charge, you know. Yeah, yeah it's not it's not a great beat. It's not a great right. Like, I mean, for it's, the it's actually a story that makes him more sympathetic. You exactly. know, exactly. Yeah. Um, so I don't understand what the big value of that is. Um, but also, I kind of want to talk about something, though, that's interesting. We sort of have, have kind of skimmed over it. But, um, you know, Matt keeps talking about how he's never killed anyone, right? You yes. know, this whole yes. season is like, I've never killed anyone. I've never crossed that line. Okay, he, he killed Nobu. Like, he killed Nobu. I mean, it was self-defense, and Nobu almost had killed him. Yes, I think that that is just muddying the waters in a not good way. Like I, he needs to say the word murder. Now the thing is, I feel like the word Matt needs to say is murder. I've never murdered anyone because that is true. At the same time, Mm -hmm. this is two lawyers talking to one another. (laughs) And maybe you need to just be really clear that you've never killed anyone. Yeah, very specific in your language. Sort the details out later, right? Because right, like if I killed someone in self defense, I'm not sure that I would go the rest of my life 
saying that I killed somebody. You know what I mean? Like I defended myself and they wound up dead. It, it's shades of meaning right. that I think are important, but it's the murder. I mean, listen to Father Latte. It's the murder that yeah. matters. Exactly. But this whole thing, this entire season, it's always, I've never killed anybody. I've never killed anybody. I've never killed anybody. And yes, he killed him in self-defense. And that is not murder. That is something different. But the language is always, I've never killed anyone. So I think that when he kills Nobu, even in self-defense, that when this is a gong that we've hit so hard throughout the whole thing, that here we have, he's never killed anybody. He's never like killed anybody meaning to. He's never murdered anyone, but he has killed somebody. And yeah. that we can use this as the thin end of the wedge into Matt, right? Mm-hmm. Is mm-hmm. that, you know, he's he hasn't been ready to cross that line. He's crossed it in a, a little bit. He's, he's kind of crossed it. He sort of put a toe over it now. And mm-hmm. does that kind of open the door up for him to make killing somebody easier? easier yet they just completely ignore it and and act like he's never killed anybody but he has yeah yeah i think it's pretty clear that you and i would have done the last two episodes a little differently and i think so <laughs> and i think staging how that fight went to be more in yeah. line with the thema- the thematic stuff going on in this whole series mm-hmm. it, it needed it needed another pass it needed another polish because either own it and have it be a thing for matt or have right. it be an actual accident, you know, that sets no right. on fire. So, yeah, because Matt threw the knives up into the lamp. Yes. Deliberately. Right. I mean, am I, um, did I see that right? Because if Nobu was swinging those knives around and they hit and Nobu was the one who hit it and he lit on fire, that'd right. be different. Or even if, uh, even if it were a block, right? Like even if it were Matt yeah. blocking one of them with the stick up into the light. I mean, I would be like, oh, right. that's I mean, an accident. That's an accident. Yeah, yeah. Right. But he very deliberately sent it into the light. So I don't know. I mean, the whole thing being it was self-defense. It's absolutely, you know, not the same thing as what he was talking about, which is deliberately going in yes. with the intent to kill somebody. That's a completely different thing. But we do have this thin end of the wedge that I think could have been narratively significant if it bothered Matt at all. But it mm-hmm. doesn't even seem to to fly on his radar. And, you know, with somebody who carries around that much much guilt on a regular basis. I cannot imagine when I walk into the building at work and there's somebody behind me and I forget to like hold the door open or I don't notice that they're behind me until it's too late and I've already let the door shut. I feel guilty for the whole walk down to my office. It takes me a while to forget that happened, right? I feel bad about that. So like I understand people with excessive and unnatural guilt. It's not okay, but I've got it, right? And here we have Matt, who is a character who has that kind of guilt. Like he had, but he has real things to feel guilty and conflicted about. The fact that he did something that caused the death of somebody, even somebody who was trying to kill him, is going to sit with him. And we just gloss over it like nothing. Yeah. No, I, I agree. I, I, like, on one hand, he ought to gloss over it because it's not a murder, mm-hmm. right? It's not a premeditated right. he set out to kill somebody. On the other hand, boy, we've sure set up with this guy to care about sanctity of life. So, Yeah. And that we can use this as the thin end. That we can use this as the thing that pushes him a little bit further down that road where he's like, well, I've done that. So. Yeah. But we also don't really have time to deal with it because we're sort of too busy having Foggy wildly overreact to everything. 
Oh, yeah. And remembering their college days, which are so narratively important. <laughs> we get it. You guys are friends. Yeah. I really mm-hmm. don't like any of it. I don't. I really think Foggy has wildly overreacted. And I kind of feel like the flashbacks are the writers realizing that they're having Foggy overreact. So they have to create these places that will tug our heartstrings harder. Yeah, but it it just doesn't. Like, oh, it's it doesn't. It doesn't and work at all. Even in the moment. Like, I'm with Foggy. Like, I'm with Foggy. I sympathize with that sense of betrayal. I sympathize with that, like, you're my best friend. We tell each other everything, and you didn't tell me this. Like, you didn't trust me. Like, I get the betrayal. Like, I'm completely with that. I think that we way overdo it. You know, um, the idea that, you know, you put me at risk, you put Karen at risk, like I'm mad and, you know, and I'm done partnering with you because I can't trust you to tell me things like I get all of that. What I think makes it really not work for me is how long we spend with this, you know, this grilling. I mean, and he is there from morning until night. It is after sunset when he leaves. So we've had a whole day of him grilling his half-dead best friend, right? And I think that, like, being hurt, being upset, saying this isn't okay, like, I get that, and I'm with Foggy on that. Um, But this is just overdone, and we're just spending so much time on this stuff that we don't need to spend. We don't need to hear Matt tell the whole story. We know the whole story. We can come in and cut into that scene after he's told him the whole story and Foggy's just dealing with it, you know? Um, We don't need all of these flashbacks. It's incredibly stupid. Um, And, you know, and then we have, you know, Fisk, on the other hand, like, I always love a scene with Gao, and I always love Leland Owsley, but it's, hey, you know, Gao's not, you know, Gao's upset with me. She tells me to, you know, choose between shadow and light. Now, Leland, can you go talk to Gao for me and, like, smooth things over? And Leland's like, okay, I guess I'll do that. Then he does that, and then she gets, and then Vanessa gets poised. Who cares? I just figured out the key to this episode. What is it? Suddenly, everyone's in middle school. <laughs> oh, my God. Pass her a note in study hall. Yes. Yes. Yep. That's yep. absolutely it, But, it. I mean, Matt and Foggy right. are in middle school. Fisk and Gow and Leland are in middle, middle school. Pass a note. Go do the thing. Yeah. Go see if she likes me. Yeah. Blah, blah, blah. Um, uh, even Karen and Ben, or yeah. at least Karen. I think Baron, Karen. Poor, poor Ben is just along for the ride. But poor Karen's ben, just yeah. like, mwahaha, mean girl manipulation. Yes, exactly. Yeah, exactly. I nailed it. Everybody's in eighth grade suddenly they for are exactly all in 55 grade. minutes. It's, it's terrible. This is, <laughs> I mean, I really like this series. I have been enjoying it so far. This is the worst episode so far, I think. These are t- this is a tough batch. Yeah. This is a tough batch. Yeah. Because um, eight could have been amazing. Mm-hmm. earlier in the series yes nine mm-hmm. could have been amazing with a lot less fuckery yes well and also a little more fuckery right. in different ways right more ninjas less fuckery <laughs> right. and then this one is just why would you guys do this to me at this stage yeah do you want me to stop is that what you're trying to do are you actively trying to get me to not want to watch the show <laughs> but you know but i mean i've liked everything else so far i've really enjoyed it so i think we just got a bad batch here but joshua out of these three episodes tell me what's your favorite part madam fucking gal <laughs> Fair enough. I think so. Anything specifically? What specifically is your favorite Madame Gao in this? I love the entire se- I mean, if I have to narrow it down to like one scene, it's a pretty long scene. And then I could probably mm-hmm. get down to like one moment. But when when she and Fisk are like sitting by the little koi pond, you know, situation, yeah. and they're having a very calm conversation where she is so thoroughly in charge. 
Yeah. She mm-hmm. is so thoroughly in charge that this giant hulk of a psychopath is listening to her <laughs> tell stories about a snake in her village. Uh, 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 and he is <laughs> lapping it up. Like, yeah, tell me and more. He's like, am I the snake or am I the elephant? Like, what's going right. on here? He's, he is really <laughs> engaging, which, which yeah. he should be, because pay attention to who yeah. you're talking to. He's like, whoa, 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 whoa. So which yeah. one am I? And and you get she gets a little smile. She's like, ah, the useful idiot asked the right question. He may not be quite as big an idiot as I thought. It's yeah, right. I just really like that whole jazz a lot. Yeah, no, she's she's pretty good, definitely. Um, well, my favorite part, I think, uh, you know, Gao is great, but you took her, so I'm gonna go with Father Latte. I like Father Latte. I like the philosophical discussions. I like the way they built that character. I think it's pretty good. It's really interesting to me that of this batch of episodes, which has in some ways a lot going on, you know, or at least they want to have a lot going on, that our two Mm -hmm. favorite parts basically boil down to incredibly well-scripted and well-acted conversations. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because those moments are so much better. It's just really interesting. All right. If you enjoyed this conversation and would like to join in, come find us on Twitter. I am at Lonnie Diane Rich and Joshua is at Joshua Unruh. And the hashtag is Listen Up A-Holes. This episode of Listen Up A-Holes was brought to you by Alyssa from Dallas. Alyssa supports Chipperish Media at the power producer level. And as a reward, gets to divine the location of Fisk's house from bones and spells chanted beneath the moonlight. Thank you, Alyssa, and thank you to everyone who supports Chipperish Media or Pulp Diction Productions and makes Listen Up A-Holes a thing. To find out how you, too, can become a Listen Up A-Holes producer, visit the Patreon links in the show notes. Producer-level support options are available at both Pulp Diction Productions and Chipperish Media. You can help show your support by leaving a great review on Apple Podcasts to make it easier for more people to find us and join in the conversation. Links are in the show notes. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Listen Up A-Holes. We'll be back next time with our discussion of the Daredevil Season 1 finale, Episodes 11 through 13. Until then, El Grande Avocados!